Welcome to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. August 2008 speaker was Hans von Spakovsky, former member of the Federal Election Commission and manager of the Heritage Foundation's Election Law Reform Initiative. Hans spoke about state and federal election laws and how the left uses the courts to influence election outcomes. All recorded live here at the Stephen P.J. Wood Building in Arlington, Virginia. So get some quince cheese on your bagel and take a sip of your macchiato because you're listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. Are you interested in running for office? Want to work on a campaign? At the Leadership Institute, it is our mission to increase the effectiveness of conservative activists and leaders in the public policy process. We offer over 40 different trainings, including campaign management school, on-camera TV trainings, and writing workshops. If you want to make a difference in public policy, visit leadershipinstitute.org. That's leadershipinstitute.org. Well, it's very nice to be here. Uh, I've known the Blackwells actually since before I came to Washington in 2001. Um, and I, just to answer a quick question, I know everybody, you hear my name and you think, well, he's not from around here. And I have to admit that's true. I was actually born and raised in Alabama. I'm, t- I'm here today to talk about litigating elections, the campaign process in 2008. Um, Charles de Gaulle once said that he'd come to the conclusion that politics was uh, too serious a business to be left to politicians. Uh, after working on election issues in Washington for seven years, I would change that a little bit to say that I think politics is too serious a business to be left to lawyers. But that's unfortunately what has happened. Um, ever since the Gore v. Bush decision by the Supreme Court in 2000, and the passage by uh, Congress of a new federal law governing elections, the Help America Vote Act, 2002, uh, there's been this tremendous increase in election-related litigation. And I think it's something that threatens our election process, the democratic way that we choose our leaders. Um, There's been a couple of studies done on this. Uh, From 1996 to 1999, so before the 2000 election, there was an average of only about 96 election-related lawsuits across the country in state and federal courts. Uh, From 2001 to 2004, that jumped to 254 cases a year on average, so a a two-and-a-half time increase. Uh, There was another study done looking at pre-election litigation, and uh, in the 2000 uh, uh, year, there were 48 of these lawsuits. In 2004, there were 114. What's happened here is that, frankly, the political left has figured out that it's to their advantage politically to try to change the rules under which we register to vote and under which we vote and under which we count the votes uh, before an election, because it's easier to try to alter the outcome of an election before it occurs than to contest it afterwards. And this substantive change, not only has there been this huge explosion in in lawsuits, but before 2000, most election-related lawsuits were post-election contests. You know, it was a losing candidate going to court and suing, saying there was something wrong with the election um, and he should have won. But what's now going on, has been going on for several years, is that the vast majority of this litigation 
is filed before the election. Right, right now, we're, what, two, three months away from the election, and there are federal lawsuits pending all over the country that have been filed by the ACLU, the NAACP, the Brennan Center, which is this organization at NYU Law School. And these lawsuits are contesting uh, voter registration rules, the kind of statewide voter registration databases that um, states have set up, standards for voting machines, et cetera. Um, basically, a lot of these lawsuits, I mean, in my mind, I think are ridiculous suits, but uh, these days in federal court, they are sometimes successful. Uh, obviously, the judges don't listen to me, but, you know, that's a problem. Um, I want to give you an example of the kind of suits that are pending. I mean, for example, can you imagine prior to 2000, the ACLU filing a lawsuit contesting that the kind of voting machine you use is potentially a violation of your constitutional rights? Well, no. Well, they have suits like that pending in Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, and several other states. Um, the Bush v. Gore decision, I think, has prompted this explosion litigation, and also I mentioned the Help America Vote Act. As you know, in 2001, after the 2000 election, election reform was the big issue. Congress was talking about it, the media was talking about it, uh, states all over the country formed task forces to look at it, because everybody was saying, well, we don't want to have a repeat of what happened in 2000. Well, the end result of that was that Congress passed this new law called HAVA. Since, as you know, in Washington, it's, it's all acronyms. Um, that law was kind of unique because we've always had a very decentralized election process. You know, in federal elections, the federal government doesn't run elections. There's no federal agency in Washington that runs elections all over the country. Elections are run, even federal elections, by the more than 3,000 counties all across the country, and even down to the municipal level in some states um, like Michigan. In fact, before the Help America Vote Act was passed, uh, running federal elections was probably the oldest unfunded mandate uh, in American history. Uh, what Congress did when they passed the Help America Vote Act is they set out a series of requirements for the court, uh, for the states. For example, they said that every state has to set up a statewide computerized voter registration database. A lot of states didn't do that. A lot of states had their voter registration lists according to, to counties. And so in some states, it was actually easy to be registered in more than one county in the same state because you could get registered in a county, move to another county, get registered in that second county, and there would be no communication between the two counties. You could be easily registered in two spots. Another thing that the Help America Vote Act did is they required all states to offer provisional ballots. Everybody know what a provisional ballot is? Well, one of the big, one of the big issues that came out of Florida in 2000 and other states were claims by people saying, well, I registered to vote, but when I went to my precinct to vote, my name wasn't on the registration list and I couldn't vote. And, you know, there were some some claims like that that turned out to be correct. You know, occasionally what would happen is people would go in and um, register to vote, try to register to vote when they went and got their driver's license. And the Driver's License Bureau, for whatever reason, administrative error, wouldn't forward that documentation to the state election officials, the person would get registered. 
So Congress said, okay, to, to prevent that from happening, people not being able to vote because of an administrative error made by state authorities, every state has to offer an individual who comes into a precinct to vote. And if that person's name is not on the registration list, if that person claims that they're registered to vote, and they're eligible to vote in that precinct, then they have to be given a provisional ballot. Um, in Virginia, in Fairfax County, for example, where we vote on electronic machines, they're supposed to hand you a paper ballot. You vote. They then segregate that ballot. They put it in a separate envelope. And what will happen is after Election Day, the local county election officials will look at that and try to determine whether or not your vote should be counted or not. Did you really attempt to register and did, did the, the county authorities make a mistake? If they did, they'll count your ballot. But if, you, if they determine that you never actually really tried to register, they don't have to count it. Well, that lawsuit prompted, uh, I'm sorry, that, that provision prompted a whole series of lawsuits in the 2004 election by the Democratic Party. And what they did is they filed suits in the battleground states of Ohio, Missouri, Florida, and Michigan. And in those lawsuits, they claimed that Congress, when it passed the HAVA law and when it put in this provisional balloting requirement, uh, overrode the traditional state rule that we have precinct voting. You know, you have to vote in the precinct that you're assigned to based on your residence and where you live. And what the Democratic Party did when they went to court is they tried to say that states have to count provisional ballots no matter where you go vote. So that meant, for example, that if you were registered to vote in Vienna, here in Fairfax County, but you were down in the southern part of the county and you wanted to vote in a precinct down there, not only would they have to give you a ballot, but they would have to count it. Now, in several states, the trial judges, it was actually kind of funny, it tells you something about how, how federal district judges uh, change. In two states, the federal district trial judges said, no, no, Congress didn't override state-based precinct voting, and no, you have to give the person who shows a provisional ballot, but if they're voting outside their assigned precinct, you don't have to count it. Two judges in two other states, Michigan and Ohio, and these are federal judges that have been appointed by Bill Clinton, said the exact opposite. They said, oh, no, 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 it's very clear Congress overrode uh, traditional uh, precinct-based voting. <laughs> Fortunately, this ended up in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals one week before the election, and the Sixth Circuit said, no, no, Congress did not override uh, state uh, traditional precinct-based voting. Now, the court actually laid out a very good analysis of saying why this would be a bad idea, because it would be much tougher for states to prevent double voting, you know, people voting in their home precinct and then going and voting someplace else in the same county. It would be very much tougher to prevent ineligible voters from coming in. A whole series of reasons for it. I'm not sure what kind of a comment it makes about the people that Dem the Democratic Party believes are going to vote for them, that they're so afraid they won't be able to figure out how to get to their own precinct. But, you know, I'll leave that for others to say. The thing about this provision is, you know, this was supposed to solve some of the problems that arose out of the 2000 election. Well, what was the biggest problem in the 2000 election, right? It was the Chad fight in Florida. 
And what happened? We had the results of the presidential election delayed for more than a month while we were doing recounts of punch card ballots in Florida trying to determine, actually I was one of the volunteers down there, trying to determine whether or not you know, each individual ballot was a vote for Gore or a vote for Bush. Well look, in 2000 only about 28% of the United States used punch card ballots. Well, now in the United States, 100% of the country has to provide provisional ballots. And I'll guarantee you that if we have a close election this November, in any state in which the number of provisional ballots handed out is within the margin of victory, there will be lawyers in every single county in those states watching as election officials the day after the election open up every provisional ballot, investigate, decide whether or not that ballot should be counted, and then fighting over whether the ballot should count or not. And we could have an election result delayed for a long time. In Los Angeles County, which is the largest county in the country, they, on average, ha uh, hand out hundreds of thousands of provisional ballots during every election. So we could have an unbelievable fight because of this. Are you looking to launch your career? Do you want to gain real, professional experience while sharpening your media skills? Then apply today to be a studio's intern here at the Leadership Institute. As a studio's intern, you'll master Adobe programs and get behind-the-scenes access to media professions across the board. Just go to leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. That's leadershipinstitute.org and click on the Career tab to learn more. The other lawsuits that are going on that have been filed by uh, the ACLU and other organizations are, are lawsuits aimed at trying to prevent states from checking the accuracy of their voter registration lists. Okay. And let me give you an example of this. Um, one of the things the Help America Vote Act did, which was a, a good thing, was they said that they changed the voter registration application that you fill out. All of you, I know, have filled this out at one time. It's a one-page form. You put on your name, your address, your birth date. Well, they added something to it. They said uh, when you register to vote, you also have to put on there your driver's license number, if you have a driver's license, or the last four digits of your social security number. And then they said what the state is supposed to do with that information is they're supposed to check it against other state databases. What that means is if you register to vote and you put a driver's license number on it, they're supposed to then uh, run that driver's license through the DMV's database and see if the name assigned to this driver's license number that's on the voter registration application matches the name in the driver's license bureau. And that way, you have a way of checking to make sure that the person who's registering to vote is really the person they say they are. Because if, if Joe Smith says he's got driver's license number XYZ, but when they check XYZ in the DMV, it's, it, it's assigned to Julie Brown, well, then you know there's a problem, right? Well, the ACLU sued the state of Washington for doing that kind of matching and refusing to register to people to vote when there was a discrepancy and a federal judge actually issued a preliminary injunction saying, yeah, I, I don't think you can do that. Uh, that kind of a discrepancy is not material to the situation. And instead of appealing the decision, unfortunately, the 
Secretary of State, a Republican, in Washington settled the case and agreed to, to allow people to register to vote even when there's no matchup between the information. The ACLU then took that settlement and went to a whole series of other states and threatened to sue them if they didn't stop their matching program. And so the states of California, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Texas, North Carolina, all stopped doing that matching. Now they filed the identical lawsuit in Florida. Federal District Court issued a preliminary injunction again. That was appealed, fortunately, it was overruled by the Court of Appeals and they remanded it back to the state. But that lawsuit is going on right now. You see what's going on here. They're attacking the ability of states to try to make sure that the voter registration lists are accurate and that there aren't any fraudulent names on those, those lists. That's at the beginning of the voting process. At the end of the voting process, what they're doing is, as you know, they have filed lawsuits uh, contesting the ability of states to require voter ID when you go in to vote. Now, that's something that's overwhelmingly approved of by the American people, and that goes across racial and ethnic lines. Every, polling, every poll on this shows you know, 70, 80 percent approval rate for this. You know, blacks, whites, Hispanics, everybody thinks it's a good idea, except for the Democratic Party and all these liberal advocacy groups in town. Indiana passed the strictest voter ID law in the country. It was upheld by the Federal District Court, it was upheld by the Court of Appeals, and it ended up before the Supreme Court. Um, fortunately, the Supreme Court in April issued a decision, 6-3, saying that voter ID is constitutional. Now, what was interesting about that decision was it was, it was clearly just a shock to the left that the Supreme Court came back and approved that law. But what shocked them even more was that you know, they expected that if they would lose, they would lose in a 5-4 decision. You know, the conservatives on the court, the four, four conservatives and the swing voter, Justice Kennedy, they expected 5-4. But what was great about this decision was it was a 6-3 decision, and the lead decision was written by Justice Stevens, who, as you know, is a very, very liberal justice. But what the liberal groups who had brought the lawsuit all forgot was that Justice Stevens came of age professionally in Chicago. Okay, so he actually is a justice who understands that voter fraud does exist, and he wrote the decision on this case, which, is, which was very great. Georgia also passed a voter ID law um, that also has been to federal court. It has been upheld, and the most interesting thing about both of these two cases is that in both lawsuits, after two years of litigation, despite claims by the plaintiffs that there were hundreds of thousands of people without voter ID, both judges noted in their decisions that in two years of litigation, the plaintiffs couldn't come up with a single individual, not one, who didn't either have an ID photo ID or couldn't easily get one. And not only that, but in the uh, Georgia case, the NAACP, they couldn't come up with a single member of their organization who didn't have a photo ID or couldn't easily get one. And that was one of the reasons the cases were, were thrown out. But again, you see there's an attack on trying to have 
accurate elections when people go in to vote. The other big issue, and this is unsettled, and uh, actually, if you want to know more about this, I've been writing papers recently for the Heritage Foundation. And if you go to www.heritage.org and plug in my name, you can find some of the papers I've written. We have a problem in this country with non-citizens, both illegal aliens and people who are here legally, registering and voting in our elections. Because right now, election officials have no way of preventing that. And there are incidents from all over the country showing that that is occurring. The only state in the country that has done something effective about this is the state of Arizona. Arizona passed a referendum in 2004 that requires you to present proof of citizenship when you register to vote. And what's interesting about that is that they did it through a referendum. The state, the people of the state of Arizona overwhelmingly passed this, this requirement even though every, almost every single elected political person in the state, including the Republicans, came out against the law. That, of course, they fought, a lawsuit was filed claiming it was uh, discriminatory and unconstitutional. The federal district judge refused to issue a preliminary injunction. He, they, she let the law go into effect. And they just had a trial, literally, uh, that ended a couple of days ago on that lawsuit. If it's upheld, I can tell you that other states will start to do that. The Speaker pro tem in the Georgia House of Representatives, who I know has already told me that he's going to introduce a bill like that in Georgia, and he wants me to come down and testify in January about it. And that's another thing that needs to be done. But again, it's going to be fought by the left. Um, I don't want to take up too much time. The other lawsuits I'll tell you about just really quickly is a lot of states have tried to pass laws that tightened up the rules for third-party organizations doing voter registration drives. And the reason for that is because, for example, most of you probably heard of ACORN, which is this uh, organization on the left that does voter registration drives, and they've had dozens of their employees convicted for voter registration fraud all over the country. Uh, they've also had problems with some of these organizations going out doing a voter registration drive and then instead of taking the filled out forms and immediately getting them to election officials so they can process them, getting people registered, hanging on to the forms. There have been incidents of these organizations hanging on to these forms for months and by the time they get them to the election officials, the deadline for registering to vote has passed. And so you have these people showing up at the polls thinking they're registered to vote and they're not. So a number of states like Ohio, New Mexico, Florida, put in, for example, they try to put in deadlines saying that if you're doing a voter registration drive, within 10 days of getting the form filled out, you're supposed to turn it into election officials. ACLU sued, saying that's a violation of their constitutional rights to have that kind of requirement. State of Ohio said, okay, your voter registration uh, employees aren't doing a very good job. Before they can participate in one of these voter registration drives, we want them to undergo some training. It seems like a pretty logical, common-sense thing, right? Preliminary injunction issued by a federal judge, that's a violation of the constitutional rights of that organization. So once again, you can see all these lawsuits by the left trying to prevent any measures to tighten up the rules when it comes to voter registration drives. The end result of all this is that you, you more and more have courts, federal judges getting involved in the rules and dictating how people get registered to vote, 
whether they have to show ID or not. And I don't think that's a good thing for our election process because it means you have federal judges more and more involved in deciding election outcomes. And I don't think that's good for our election process. I don't think that's good for public confidence in our elections. And again, I can guarantee you that if we have a close election, uh, what happened in 2000 will be nothing to what will happen in November. Because Barack Obama, one of the first things he did as a lawyer in Chicago was he represented the organization of ACORN, the one I was just talking about. And I'll give you just one quick example of the way the, the Obama and his lawyers are willing to twist and take advantage of the system. You may not have heard about this, but in the Ohio Democratic primary when it occurred, on election day, Obama's lawyers went to court, federal court, in Cuyahoga County, which is one of the biggest counties in the state, and they, they, they made a claim that the judge should issue an order extending the polling hours because there was bad weather in the county and people wouldn't, couldn't get to the court. It, it was real, there was really nothing to this lawsuit. None of the polls were closed. None of them were out of ballots. There was no reason to be in federal court, but unfortunately, they persuaded a federal judge to issue an order extending the polling hours. Now, the funny thing about the order, if you actually look at it, is that there must have been microbursts of really bad weather in that county, because instead of extending the polling hours of all the polls, polling places in the county, there's a handwritten list of about 20 polling places. By an odd coincidence, they're the polling places where, he had, where Obama had been polling the strongest against Hillary Clinton. And that's the kind of tactics I can tell you we can expect to see in the November election. Uh, I, I'll, I'll end this by saying that um, uh, I think we should be doing everything we can to uh, get the courts out of the election process. Uh, I don't think, unfortunately, that's going to happen. Uh, but uh, I'm hoping that we don't have the kind of contested election coming up in November that we had in 2000, but I'm afraid that if it's close, uh, it, it may be much worse than what happened before. Thanks. Now we have to answer any questions. Thanks for listening to the Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. To listen to more Breakfast, head over to the Leadership Institute YouTube channel. And to see who our next WWCB speaker is, visit our website at leadershipinstitute.org. The Wednesday Wake Up Club Breakfast podcast is produced and edited by Alexander Chang with support from Tiffany Roberts and Jared Cummings. Advertisements by Alexander Chang and Christopher Olson. Executive produced by David Fenner and Morton Blackwell.